It's good to be back together with you guys today as we open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Special thanks to Bill Tussie who uh, brought the message for you last Sunday as my wife and I and Lane traveled to New York. Finger Lake region of New York where I pastored for eight years and lost their senior pastor. My uh, had been my administrative pastor and a good friend of mine for many, many years. Unexpectedly, of course, it's always unexpected, isn't it? But we expect it because we understand we go to be with the Lord and he was promoted there. Still a hard time for the church, and I, I covet your prayers for them and for the wife and for two sons who are there who are missing their dad, and for a church where there's some big shoes to fill. So, But we're back today, and I'm glad that uh, you are here, and we're going to be in the Word today. And of course, as always, if we can minister to you in some way, answer some questions, please feel free to contact us. There are a number of ways to do that. You can find that in your bulletin, and you can find there on the back of the chair in front of you. But open your Bibles, 1 Timothy 3.14. Timothy Dwight was Yale University's greatest president. He was regarded as one of the great educators in American history. Uh, Dwight reformed both Yale's curriculum and administration and tripled the school's enrollment. Both Princeton, then called the College of New Jersey, and Harvard conferred doctorates on him, but his greatest achievement took place, you may be surprised to know, under his preaching in 1802, when a third of his students were converted. President Dwight was, first of all, a preacher of the Word and a lover of the church. His great hymn you're probably familiar with, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord, authored in 1800, says it all. Its lines really reveal a heart for the church that if Paul were alive today, I'm sure it would have been one of his favorites because Paul taught and lived out every line of that hymn for the church, especially the third verse where President Dwight penned, for her, for her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. That's how Paul lived, that's how he died. It represents his passion for the church, uh, which really animated everything that he wrote in his pastoral text, particularly as we look at 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, where he calls the church to proper conduct and confession. So I'd like you to look there, if you would, pick it up in verse 14, which is our, our passage for today. And I love this because uh, today we're going to begin to wrap up this section, this first three chapters, and we're going to close out our time today in celebrating the Lord's table. You've had a lot of time to be introspective. I hope that you've been doing that as you've worshiped the Lord in those words that you sang, and so I encourage you and, and uh, urge you to more along that line as we close out our time around the table. Verse 14 says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. This is a great way that Paul kind of wraps up, and, and you can see that his thoughts are turning other directions as he wraps up with this wonderful passage. Obviously, the church at Ephesus had a place in his heart like few others did. It was from the base of that church where he spent three years of his ministry, and many other churches were founded. Many churches, our church, we would love to say that the Apostle Paul pastored here. Wouldn't that be great? That he spent his time here. No doubt, what a wonderful marquee for the church that the Apostle Paul himself was there. He strengthened, he wrote, if we're at 1 Corinthians actually, the letter we went over verse by verse from here. 
He poured his life into that. He loved and he nurtured the men who were the leaders of that church in the original group. And to see it go wrong and it must have been heartbreaking for him. And, and that can happen today too where men pour their lives and their efforts endure all kinds of hardship and sorrow and, and labor somewhere only to watch the church head backward over time after his departure. There's a lot of anxiety uh, connected to that experience and some sympathy and some of the pain that Paul felt can still be experienced today. In fact, Paul writes about that and says about his own uh, difficulties that he struggled with. He says this, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he says, apart from such external things, Paul just got through talking about the physical struggles of the ministry, all the things he had to endure and hunger and, and uh, cold and, and abuse by his countrymen and abuse by people in the world and all these kinds of things. Uh, and he said, apart from those things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. Who is weak, he said, without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So he wrote to this church in Corinth, no doubt, thinking about them, but probably thinking about this church in Ephesus as well, as he was always concerned about those things. Those always intrude on your mind. As you spend time in ministry over the years and you pastor in different places, people are in your mind. These are the people you, it's the reason why you were there, for people to see the church grow, to see people disciple, to see people come to faith. Of course, they're always on your mind, some more than others. Perhaps the Lord brings them to you. And so Paul had those concerns. He had those sorrows. And he experienced all that in a very large measure, considering the number of churches he helped establish and the large number of people that he discipled. And as we studied in the background portion of our verses, in verse by verse through this letter, uh, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus after having the same type of experience there. He had come back with Timothy. He knew there was trouble there. He put out two of the leaders, probably two of the ringleaders, some of the most difficult ones probably to extract from the church. He put them out of the church and then left Timothy there. And he writes back and he says, hey, Timothy, I want you to know these things because the things I'm about to tell you are essential that you properly behave in the church. And that's the point of the whole epistle, how to properly behave in the church. It, it's establishing proper conduct in the assembly. We call this a pastoral epistle because it's written, of course, to a pastor of a church in Ephesus, Timothy himself. And in four, beginning in verse 14 and the first part of 15, we really get some insight into the purpose of Paul's writing to establish, he says, proper conduct within the assembly of the redeemed. And we've mentioned this before, and, and numerous times I think we've looked at this, as we looked at some of the requirements for leadership as we walked our way through, and we've just come back and said, remember, the purpose of the epistle was to establish proper conduct in the church. And the Lord has the right to say what he wants done, which really kind of uh, contravenes everything that you may have heard, especially when people write, let's me reimagine church, one of the phrases I hate the most. We don't get the opportunity to reimagine church. The Lord gave us the church and gave us the conduct and then wrote some epistles to make sure we knew there were specific things that need to go on. And as we get into this, you'll see you're supposed to find faithful men who, and you teach them and they'll be faithful to teach others also, which really describes uh, continuing to bring up leadership and men who, who do the things that you're going to do and duplicating yourself. We see reading publicly the Word of God and, and holding on to sound doctrine and passing on everything that you see that Paul has said. These are all things we're supposed to do, and we're going to see some of that today. So these are not options to reimagine it and try to do something differently. And so we've looked a number of times as we looked at leadership and said, you know, just so you're aware, um, this is what the, the Lord says is supposed to happen in the church, and we don't get to imagine that to be any different than we could imagine anything else. 
And so we've spent a lot of time there, so we won't have to spend a lot of time with this section. But coming to verses 14 to 16, he really goes right down to the basics, and he really affirms what is the most elementary parts of the church. And the first one is behavior, behavior in the church. And it seems to come to a planned point, as we pointed out. The Holy Spirit's carrying Paul along here because it's at the very end of first, the first three chapters and just before the last three chapters. And it's the, at the end of really of a positive section and moving into a negative section. So he's given some positive instruction, just so wonderful for us to see that, what the church is supposed to look like, who's supposed to lead it, the example that they're supposed to bring. Then he's going to move into some negative instruction and negative warning. It's the very core of the letter, these three brief verses, and they are to remind Timothy that at the heart of the church is, are these things. So look at verse 14, if you would. He says this. He says, I'm writing these things to you. Now people ask, well, what are, what are these things? Is it, um, is it just referring to what he said about overseers and deacons? Uh, is it only what's come before that, perhaps, like the roles of men and women and, and false doctrine and what to do about it? And, and since there's no way to limit any of that, and it just says, I'm writing these things, it's probably best to see the comment as referring to everything he writes to Timothy. So everything he writes to Timothy is to impact what happens in the church. And so we can say things that have already been written and things that will be written and things that are that to come to Timothy, all that's covered under, I'm writing these things to you, because we only got through a portion of it. Now, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Literally, if I tarry long, that's the idea, you will know how. And we know that Paul did tarry long. We know that he never made it back for another visit. In fact, he was arrested again, and at the end of that arrest, he was put to death. So Paul didn't get to come back. Paul didn't know what was going to happen. He planned, and he, and he practiced the ministry that he told everybody else to do, and he was ready to go back and do uh, further things with Timothy, but the Lord allowed him to go home. And if you remember Paul, he said, it's better to be with the Lord, but better for you, for me to be with you. And the Lord determined that it was the time for him to come. So he says, if I tarry long, I write this so you'll know how. And by the way, that you is singular, that you, Timothy, that's who he's referring to, that he's the primary recipient of the letter. You'll know how. And by the way, it's in the perfect active subjunctive. That's the word edo, which just means if I write this, you will have. And, and subjunctive, of course, is, is contingency, and it's usually expressed by if and then. And here in the perfect isn't just referring to just having knowledge, it's this, you'll be doing what is necessary in the church, and not only Timothy, but everybody. Do, he says, conduct himself, and a strefo, to turn oneself around. Now, that's an interesting comment. The way we can understand it is this, this letter will challenge everyone to turn in the right direction. How, it's, this is how everybody is to behave. You may find yourself going in the right direction, so that's going to affirm that you're doing what you should do. You may find that you aren't going correctly, and this will, these comments, he says, will make sure that you have the correct outcome. Speaking, of course, as we've said, even in our title for the study, Guidelines for Public Worship, and even in the more broad uh, uh, title, Instructions for the Church. So it speaks to personal Christian life, obviously, especially in the example that has to be part of each leader's life. Each leader has some qualifications they have to live up to in order to be in the pulpit 
or as a deacon, and then those standards then become that godly standard that people are going to follow and should be following. And so it has a personal application, but it also more directly speaks to our role and our behavior and our conduct, mark this, as a duly constituted assembly of redeemed saints inside the assembled church. Exactly what's going on right now. What will go on, Lord willing, on Wednesday and on Monday and on Friday and on uh, whenever we come and we're at the assembled church, it applies. And so that's the actual context because we're part of the house of God. And so he has the right to say what goes on in his house. Just like if you have a home, the Lord's given that to you and you have a wife and children. As a man, you have the right to say what goes on in your house and you have to direct that. In fact, that's a requirement for those who lead the church and the example for those who follow that's the idea. God has a right to say what goes on in his own house. And that gives way to the last half of verse 15 where Paul is carried along to write three illustrative phrases. And these are really, really important. There are three. The first one is God's household. The second one is which is the church of the living God. And the third one is the pillar and support or foundation of the truth. So let's work our way through those as we begin this section. And we've looked at uh, that first one, the household of God already. And what we saw when we looked at it, that word household is undoubtedly the language for family. And we already saw that this is what it means in verses 4, 5, and 12, where the word is variously translated family or household, and that gave us the qualifications for elders and deacons. And we said, and we saw very clearly, if they can't manage their own household, they're also disqualified to manage the church household. Because the first household, your own, where you bring up godly children, and they submit to you, and they're not throwing fits and doing what they want and being disrespectful, they come up under your authority, you demonstrate your ability then to manage the church in whatever level you are doing that in your ability to manage your household. That's the idea. So we know that has to do with family. But Paul addresses the church in Ephesus with a family language, and he says this. He says in Ephesus, uh, to, in Ephesus, Ephesians 2.19, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints, mark it, and are of God's household. This is not a sideline affair. This is part of your identity. You're part of God's household. So the church is a family with God as the father, believers as his children, and therefore brothers and sisters, and elders and deacons as leaders to help the family carry out the father's purposes. And the fact that we are a family has some profound uh, implications. And as I was writing these down this week and kind of taking note of, of, of how the passage carries us along, I got a little chuckle out of this first one. And here it is. Maybe you will too. It means that we are in an eter eternal relationship, which means we'll always be brothers and sisters. Is that okay with you? So you look around, everybody who's redeemed and part of the household of God in the church, you're going to always be brothers and sisters with them for all eternity. So if you're not getting along with your brothers and sisters, if you don't unconditionally forgive and accept people, as we see in Romans chapter 12, and treat people as equals and don't have any hierarchy or status or whatever, but you're completely humble and you're okay with interacting with, if you're not doing that, if you hold grudges, you gossip, then the eternal aspect may not seem so inviting to you. It is true nonetheless. And so that is a very important part. And of course, that's that adage, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. And I think we can all relate to that in one aspect or another. But I think this calls us back to what the conduct inside the household of God is supposed to look like, and particularly that we recognize that brothers and sisters will always be those and I, and I think the fact is, really, and hopefully, the happy fact is, 
in heaven, it will be the redeemed, perfected family which, whom we will dwell, and we'll be certainly thrilled to do that. And I think that if we remember how far we've come and from what we've been saved from, that's a very small obstacle, is it not, to be part of the redeemed and to know that the Lord has secured us forever. And, and actually living below with the saints we know is meant to be and can be wonderful if we draw close to the Father. In fact, 1 John chapter, three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 has that to say. He says this, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus. In other words, John says, what was passed on from Jesus to us, we passed on to you so that you and I, he says, can have fellowship and you can have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus. So verse 4 says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So we really want to see this happen and we want to have the joy of seeing you have fellowship with us and with the Father. And this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, but yet walk in the darkness, in other words, the habit of our life is to walk in sinfulness, he says, we lie and do not practice the truth, no matter how much you feel like you've been saved. And then this part, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, and again, that's in the subjunctive, it's if then, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we fellowship with one another. There's the one another's. The Lord wants us to have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, as he's in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. What a joy that is to have that fellowship. That's, that's the dwell below with saints we know kind of thing. And then in John chapter 17 and verse 18, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, as you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through your word. So not just the immediate disciples who are following him, but it includes right on down to Berean. He wants us to have the same type of sanctification and fellowship that he has with the Father. And then in verse 21, he says this, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and me are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that's, that's dwelling below with saints we know. And it is connected to our knowledge of the Father and our desire to be in fellowship with Jesus. So people always say, well, why are there so many churches? Shouldn't we all just be together? I mean, that's unity, right? No. Unity around the truth is true unity with the Father. Unity, as we've proclaimed to you, John says, what we've proclaimed, we pass that down to you. You can have fellowship with the Father and with His Son and with us on the truth. It's not based on unity. It's based on truth. And there's this implicit relationship triangle here with God, the Father, and Son at the pinnacle and believers at the bottom angle. And, and so the closer our relationship is to Him, the closer we become to one another. That's the idea. Tozer has a really great illustration about this, really unforgettable truth. He writes this, quote, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers then, he says, met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship, end quote. That's exactly right. So as we look to Christ, as we look to the understanding of the scriptures, and we're going to see that in just a minute, 
That's how we become closer to one another. It's how we depart from those things. It's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. It's jealousy and angry words and all those things that drive us apart. And those are not godly wisdom, James says. Godly wisdom because it's pure, right? So the idea is we're the household of God. And because we're the household, we have those relationships. And then it's important to realize if we're the household of God, that this is the church of the living God. That's the second one. In the Old Testament, God is called the living God to emphasize the deadness of idols. And we know that, and we've seen that hundreds of times. It's also a pretty favorite designation for God in the New Testament. It's over 15 times just in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, it's a very important passage that deals with this. In fact, it uses those words and brings in some other things. In verse 16, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are what? The temple of the living God. Idols are the temple of dead gods. They don't contain anything that can help you. Satan animates just enough there to keep people fooled. But the ultimate understanding is they're dead. Just as God said, I'll dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what's unclean, and I'll welcome you. And, so, and then we get the family part too, and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that great? So we come out from among them and be separate, just like in the Old Testament, except now we're the temple where God dwells, the living God. And the Bible says we are the ecclesia, the called out ones. And that's the great glory of the assembling together of the Lord's day. Remember, the context of the letter is what is supposed to be done when you meet together as a church. And it's the same here. So what does that look like then if that's, if that's part of the command and part of the instruction that Paul wraps up with at the end of these first three chapters? It's the great glory of the assembling together at the Lord's day. We're family and come together. All of us, as we just saw in 2 Corinthians 6, adopted into God's household by repentance and belief, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and made to be the dynamic assembly of the living God. That includes a vast spiritual encouragement all among us, see? That includes the teaching of the Word of God when we come together. It includes singing about Him. It's going to include fellowship. It's going to include celebrating the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that second one we're going to do today. And so it's just obvious that the household are the called out ones. And that's why we read a series of commands in Hebrews chapter 10, because God knows what his family needs, and he has made it clear that people indwelt by the Spirit of the living God need the real thing. This is just so common today. We redefine what it means to be church. We redefine what we can do with church. And then COVID didn't help us at all. It just exacerbated the problem. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, uh, which were really demonstrated very clearly on the early church and by the early church, he says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. How do you hold up fast to the confession of your hope? You're going to be, have to be in the Word every day. How do you remind yourself of your blessings and the place that you are and what you're required to do if you're not in the Word? There's no way for you to know that. So you're going to be feeding yourself. And then verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There's another one another. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stimulate one another to good deeds. Are you able to do that through cyber church? You are not. How are you going to do that through cyber church? How are you going to come alongside someone and help stimulate them to love and good deeds? Particularly this, just in case you're, un you're unsure where I'm going, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. In other words, you don't stay home. You come. 
And you don't forsake the assembling of the selves together. And encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You come, encourage one another to be faithful. You come and encourage one another to love and good deeds. TV church won't do that. Neither will cyber church. Because corporate gatherings are where all of that happens. That's where the body meets together. That's part of the family dynamic. And there may be some physical reasons why you can't come from time to time. But as we pointed out on on Resurrection Sunday... If any reason is good enough to miss church and you do that regularly, and as, as I was telling you, one of, the biggest, one of the biggest faults in Christianity is people who think they're saved because they'll say, I know I'm saved. I'm sure I am. But and I responded with a number of things, and one of them was this. If missing church is no problem for you and anything is okay to miss, that's an adequate reason to assume that you are deceived and you're not really born again to begin with. Because believers are drawn to the family, and they want to be part of the assembly. And Hebrews remind us that that should be the case, and we shouldn't be missing, as is the matter of some. So this is very important, and has a dynamic that reaches out past the simple, the simple phrases. And if you think about it, just as we wrap up that thought, if you think about the many, many places in the world, so move out past the United States, move out past the ease it is to do what you want to do and the accessibility of digital church and all of that stuff. Move out past that. Go to places in the world where the church is persecuted, where access is difficult, where it's hard to get there and maybe no roads or maybe it takes a long time to walk and maybe no cars. People still come and they're willing to put in the time and get there and make sure they're there because true believers know this is their duty and it's one they willingly give. And that's important to remember in case that word duty sits poorly with you. We've forgotten that in the, more, in the modern church. Did you know people in the, in the ancient church knew the word duty? Because that means it's something you're required to do. And guess what? We don't get to define church and figure out we, don't have, we can only do what we want and God's perfectly pleased with that. He isn't. That's the whole reason for the letter. This is what's supposed to be done in the church. And these things are your duty to do. And so I think we can see that fairly easy, easily. And, and it's, it's an awesome uh, thing to think about. Now, number three, as we think about these three phrases, the, the third one, because we're part of God's family, we make up the called out ones who worship together each week, and we represent this wonderful description, the pillar and support of the truth. And that's just a, an awesome descriptive phrase. And when I read that, it's just so humbling, and it's so overwhelming, and so encouraging all at the same time. The Lord looks at us this way, Pillar in support of the truth. John Calvin wrote this about that passage, quote, it's no ordinary dignity that's ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and foundation of the truth. Think about it, he says. Is there a higher term God could have used to describe the church, end quote? Is there a better, higher, more noble, more instructive, more responsible term that God could have used to describe the church? than the pillar and support of the truth. And that pillar and foundation are really graphic architectural metaphors. A foundation is essential to the building. A building is only good as its foundation. That word pillar, the noun stylos. This is really cool as a footnote. This is the base for the word histomy. If you remember prohistomy, that was one of the requirements of uh, a man who leads was included in the requirements for the church to fix securely the spiritual life of the family. To manage, it says, his own household well. That word manage is our word. So the church is to be the fixed and secure place where spiritual can occur, just like a man who leads has to establish that in his own family. It is the fixed place where spiritual instruction is to happen. 
And so those who are in it are set on a firm foundation and can stay and hold even in difficult times. And if you travel around Virginia a little bit, you see some of these houses have been here a long time. You see them start to lean this way or lean that way. You realize that and we lived in a house built in 1830 when we lived in New York. It was built on just flagstone piled on top of itself. No concrete, no foundation. And so our kitchen had a fairly severe angle. And if you were mopping, you could be in trouble, okay? You could go, you know, hydroplane. This is, this is the issue, see? That's not a firm foundation. But that was the foundation people, houses were built on. But in nowadays, in our, in our modern building techniques, we understand that foundation. We understand rebar. We understand concrete. We understand where it needs to be in order to last a long time. That's the issue. The church is to be that. That's the, that's the metaphor. So it's a pillar, and then it's the support. And the pillar is the definite article. It is the pillar. It excludes all other things. This is the one high point that holds up all this beautiful thing that's supposed to look like the Lord and reflect Him well. And then support is the noun uh, hedron yuma, which is where we would find a kind of a compound word. It's bedrock or solid ground. So it goes together well. The church provides a solid bedrock of truth through the verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God. So it's not how the Catholic Church has flipped it around and made it uh, an ungodly thing, that it's the priest, that's the stat, that he, whatever he says is the establishment of the church. That's not it. What the Word of God says is that solid bedrock, the church makes sure we teach it so that, that pillar goes up and it's fixed securely and holds up the house. So as the columns uh, that give the building its structure, that give it its longevity, that give it its beauty, the church as a pillar upholds the truth, shows forth this structure and beauty and eternality of God where it's set firmly on the foundation of the Word of God. And so, it's, again, it's not something you just dismiss uh, cavalierly and say, well, we're just going to do this today. I'm going to give you Kurt's five points of how to have a nice family or, or whatever. I'm going to talk about politics today. Listen, sometimes they make their way into it if there's a passage that's dealing with it and we can see an obvious illustration. But you don't need that from me. What you need to be the pillar and support of the truth is faithfully teaching the Word of God over the long haul so you're established firmly in your faith, and you're not shaken by, by wind, you're not shaken by tides, you're not shaken by earthquakes, those things, you are still fixed. And you're doing what you need to do, and I'm doing what I need to do. And the truth comes from Him. Always relevant. It's always timeless. So whenever the church is faithful to God's Word, it is the foundation and pillar of God's truth in the world. It always has application. Always has application. The better you know it, the more you spend time in it, the more you're here. And not excusing it for any other reason. You come and you're here and you're plugged in and you're growing and you're being instructed and that just kind of fills in wherever you've been, what you've been doing. It's just part of that dynamic that works together. That's the awesome description of the church and it holds a really sobering reality of the responsibilities of the church. But Paul says, in case I'm, in case I'm delayed, this is how you're to conduct yourself. So we don't get to redefine that. And just as a, a foundation undergirds then, and we just kind of sum this up, a building or, or a pillar supports the roof. The assembly of believers has been appointed to uphold and undergird in this world the truth that God has revealed through Christ. That's a divine call to allow the Word of God to saturate all of life, both in the function of the church meeting, which is the context, and of course on out personally. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 is a really great illustration of that. The Bible explains the Bible, of course. In verse 23, Peter says this, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through, mark this, the living 
an enduring word of God. You were initiated into the faith through the word of God. That's how you came to faith. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures. How long, beloved? Forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. All what, the things that men say, the things that men come up with, all that stuff, all passes away. It's not that it isn't important. It's not that you won't receive instruction from a faithful pastor, but it's all going to fall away, and the only thing that's going to be left is the Word of God. How did you do it? How did you do with it? And as those who lead the church, especially as those who oversee the church and do it by preaching and teaching, that's all it's measured by. I tell all young preachers, you've got one audience. You don't have hundreds of people. you got one person you got to please, and you got to please them day in and day out, when it's fun to do it and when it isn't, in season and out, when you don't feel well, when you feel well, when people receive it, when they don't receive it. you got one person to please. That's it. And this is the issue here. The word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which preached to you. That's what Peter says. You got it. Now you pass it on. This is the thing that matters. It's how you came in. That's how everyone comes in. It'll always be the standard by which all belief is measured. It is the word we continue to preach, he says. And, and how are we to conduct ourselves in the church meeting? Family, coming and assembling, pillar and support of the truth, the foundation. Jesus himself prayed for the church. He said this in John 17, 17. Sanctify them, that is, to make them more Christ-like, more godly in the truth. What's the rest of it? Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. It's always back to that. You're not going to be made more like Christ through some clever illustration from me. You're not, there's no some video that's going to do it. You're not going to pop into a big, you know, uh, revival time. And that's all of a sudden going to sanctify you. That's over time, and we go through this in the Be the Church class. Over time, saturating yourself with the Word of God, then exposed to the Word of God, understanding what it says, what it means by what it says. And as you understand that, you apply those things systematically, you become more like Christ. It's not some esoteric thing that maybe happens magically. You become more like Christ directly related to how much time you spend in the Word. And that's the only way you can become like Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, another, I think, very, very powerful revelation of just how important this whole thing is, this pillar in support of the truth. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says. Everybody wants that, don't they? They want grace, they want peace. How's it multiplied? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Where's that knowledge come from, beloved? It comes from the Word of God. You want grace and peace in your life? Saturate yourself with the Word of God. That doesn't mean your life will be perfect. It's not the Joel Osteen, you'll have everything you need, right? Everything you want. The Lord will provide what you need, and you'll have grace and peace, regardless of the situation. That's the sign of a true believer, Okay, and, and I think we could take the hundreds of millions of people who live in other parts of the world who will never be prosperous and who have grace and peace and flourish and are sanctified and understand just by that illustration alone that that whole thing over there is false. So this is very important. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, what are some of the benefits? Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, mark this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. What? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. You mean except where it gets really, really serious and, you know, personal and like, you know, complicated. No. I mean, I'm not saying it. I'm just saying that he's granted us everything needed for you just mean godliness, for spiritual things. Not for difficult times in our life. No, it says life and godliness. So, how important is the Word of God and its foundation? And I would propose this to you, beloved. 
that there isn't anything that you're going through, no matter how how complex, how difficult, how much hardship, Whatever it was, whatever time it was in your life, however it's impacting you now, that there isn't some, somebody here at Berean who has the knowledge and understanding from the Word of God to help you through it. And it's likely that that person probably went through something very similar. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says they were comforted from the Lord and they'll provide comfort to you because they understand all of the dynamic of that. The church is equipped to do it through the Word of God and it's given people to help other people. And so to go outside the Christian influence and say, okay, well, I need a professional for this. This can't possibly be helped in the church is to really deny that passage that you've got everything you need for life and godliness and it's to not believe what God has said about his own word because it says you have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his excellence. Is that just the stuff that doesn't require an expert? Is that just unless you need a professional? No, that's everything, right? Because you have the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. When you come to faith, do you have all the knowledge you need of Christ to help everybody? No, you're a baby. But you don't want to stay there, right? You're a baby, an infant in Christ, and you want to move forward. And you want to take in all of it, right? You read it through every year, and every time you read it through, it's new. And every time you read it through, there's fresh stuff there. And there's stuff you begin to understand you didn't understand before. And the Lord then is making you available to be his witness and to be his tool to help someone else and to give out the gospel. This is what it's supposed to look like, see? This is the church. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Those are two wonderful adjectives. Precious and magnificent. We can't, we can't sound those, can we? The depth of that preciousness of what he's given us and the magnificence of those promises, I think we just barely nibble at it once in a while. But he's given them to us so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, you may be transformed into a reprint of Jesus, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, you wouldn't know this if you listen to a lot of modern church services or small group Bible studies that never study the Bible. But obviously, a lot rides on the simple fact that God's word is to be everything to us in the church if we're to be the pillar and support of the truth. And that is instruction to what's supposed to go on when you assemble together. The preface of the Geneva Bible in the 17th century really summarized the Bible as, quote, the light to our paths, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. And I would add to that everything pertaining to life and godliness. But you can catch it, right? I think they captured it. Bible is a light, a key, comfort, shield, sword, school, mirror, testimony, food, nourishment, foundation, pillar, and support of the truth. Everything. So those three descriptive phrases, I think, together make a compelling picture. As the church, we are family, we're household, and together we are to love as brothers and sisters who share the same heredity. We are the church, a congregation of the living God, so we come together when we're here in multiple temples of the living God, alive, dynamic, so much to offer one another because you inhabit the Holy Spirit just like the person next to you does if they're born again. As the church, we are to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. The truth of God's word 
is that bedrock, that mortar, and the brick of our lives. And remember, the motivation for this exemplary conduct was openly evangelistic. It just goes back, if you think about Second, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is good. When we pray for all men everywhere, from all those in our authority, when we have a good testimony as a church, he says, this is good. Pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to what? Come to the knowledge of the truth. And the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And, and here really is the key verse, 1 Timothy, call to proper conduct and the church family. And it's made even more compelling by understanding that we are a family, a gathering of people indwelt by the living God, the repository and herald of truth. And when the people of God live out what they, were, what they are to be in Christ, it will obviously enhance the teaching of the Word of God and adorn the truth of the gospel. Because whatever you are out there, that's what people look at Berean and think that they are. So the church should be in the community the best argument for Christianity as a pillar in support of the truth. And so like we saw earlier in Paul's description, this household is the church of the living God and we come together as ecclesia and we teach the word and we sing about him and it includes fellowship. It includes celebrating the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism and we're going to do that right now. And so I'd ask you to begin to prepare your hearts. I'm going to move down there and be with you.